nine years ago, I was invited to leave Pennsylvania to help plant a church in a place I knew almost nothing about, Naples, Florida. Six years ago, I was honored to be ordained as a minister of the gospel by the family church of Marco Island, right alongside some of my best friends, two of which serve you faithfully as pastors. Four years ago, I was called to serve as the senior pastor of Wellsboro Bible Church, located in a small town in rural Pennsylvania, where my wife Katie, who's standing in the back, and our three children, uh, Charlotte, Charity, and Hudson, all resign. Here's what I want you to know. The gospel is being preached in Pennsylvania as a large part of the fact that this church, the family church, has been faithful to the gospel. If you were to visit Wellsboro Bible Church, you would notice that the fingerprints of this church are all over the place. Terry and Casey and Luke continue to shepherd me very well, and I appreciate the, the work of this church in my life and in the life of my family. Uh, so I want to begin with a heartfelt thank you to you as a body of Christ who has been faithful uh, to carry out the gospel here on Marco Island with fingers reaching out across the world. So I'd like to ask the Lord now for help just once more uh, before we turn our attention to his word. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we are amazed that any of us are permitted to be here this morning. Lord, it is only by your grace that we could walk into a place like this and sit under the teaching of your word. Lord, it is such an honor to join together with dear brothers and sisters in Christ, with whom we'll worship for all of eternity at your feet. We thank you for a foretaste of that even now. Father, we ask now that as we turn to your word that you would help us. Lord, would you give us soft hearts that we might receive well these ancient words that you have preserved through the Holy Spirit for our good today? And Lord, would you help me as I share the gospel with this church? Or would you give me the words that are consistent with the original intent of the Holy Spirit in authoring this passage? We fully depend upon you now. Lord, please help us. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Never ask God for patience. Have you ever heard that phrase? Perhaps you've said it yourself. Never ask God for patience because he just might answer that prayer. And patience is a lesson that can only be learned the hard way. Patience is not something we get. It is something we develop. I wonder this morning, are you a patient person? Would your spouse say that you're a patient person? How about your children? Would other drivers on the road say that you're a patient person? Are you patient when someone wrongs you? Are you patient when someone points out your weaknesses especially when they point them out to everyone else but you? Are you patient when your health is in decline? Are you patient when the money runs out? Are you a patient person? That's the question we have in mind this morning as we consider the passage that we're studying together. So if you have a Bible, please take it out and open to the book of James. 
the book of James, chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, it's very important that you do. If you'll just raise your hand, someone will bring you one from the back. James, chapter 5. As you're turning there, I'll tell you that I have had the privilege over the past few months of working through the book of James with my congregation. Uh, I'm just going to give you the the 10-second overview that I hope will help you have enough context to understand what James is talking about in this final passage of his letter. So James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he was a prominent leader in the early church. We learn from other places in the New Testament that it's very likely that he didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. So he grew up with Christ, but didn't believe that he was the Messiah. It wasn't until Jesus was buried and then raised from the dead and appeared first to James that he finally believed. But when James' heart was pierced by the gospel, he surrendered all of himself to Christ to the point that he became a leader or a pastor in the early church. He's teaching Christians in his letter or his epistle what it means to live in light of the fact that the Messiah has come. And so these were people who would have been living under the Jewish law. Now they're free from that law. And James is instructing them, in light of your freedom, in light of a risen Christ, this is how you should live. Friends, 2,000 years later, James is telling us, in light of a risen Christ, this is how we should live. So in James chapter 5, we see some very direct instruction. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. As James teaches us to practice a very difficult virtue, patience. I'll begin reading in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Well, I've put together a statement that I believe summarizes this passage well. My entire outline will flow out from this summary statement. That statement is this. I draw ever nearer to God when I grow in patience. I draw ever nearer to God when I grow in patience. You see, the fundamental belief of every Christian is that it is good for us to be near God. And we understand that positionally, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But for the rest of our lives, we'll learn relationally what it means to draw ever nearer to Him. We understand that there is no pleasure of this world, no sinful practice, no worldly wisdom that will serve us better 
than a growing and intimate relationship with God. And so it is good for us to draw ever nearer. In my church, I entitled the entire series, Ever Nearer, because I see this recurring theme throughout the book, that as we submit to God by obedience to his word, we do draw nearer. So the, the word of God is not some heavy burden. This is freedom. And so as we learn to walk in patience, we draw ever nearer to him. So yes, it is a good idea to pray for patience, even though you know you're going to have to learn it the hard way. And so why is this such a big deal? Let me give you a little perspective by asking you to consider what it's like to be impatient. There's a passage that is often read at Christian weddings. If you've ever been to one, I'm sure you've heard it. It comes from 1 Corinthians 13. It's the great love passage. Let me just read to you the first three words. Love is patient. Love is patient. And so let's take that in reverse. When I am impatient, what am I? I'm unloving. That's the first problem with impatience. It is unloving. Friends, to be unloving is the opposite of what it means to be a Christian. It reveals a deep, inward, spiritual problem because it is counter to the Christian faith that we profess. The second problem comes from another passage of Scripture. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. This is another call to patience. The Apostle Paul says to the Roman church, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. And so Paul tells this beloved group of Christians that patience is the proper response to what? To tribulation. To great suffering. In other words, when life gets difficult, a Christian is called to respond by exercising patient endurance. I think that's because patience is evidence of the change that has taken place within our heart. When you exercise patience, you show that in your gut, you believe that no matter how difficult the trial, no matter how severe the pain, he's a good, good father. He's wiser than we are. He loves us so much. And he is completely sovereign over the universe. How could we not patiently endure even great trial? So when we are impatient, what are we? We are unloving and we are unfaithful. That's why patience is such a big deal. So we're going to see this play out with four statements uh, taken from James's instruction. And the first is this. Patience is a demonstration of active dependence. Active dependence. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I want you to notice just a couple of things. The first is that he directly instructs his audience. He names them. This is to the brothers. If you look back just one section, uh, one passage prior, starting at verse 1, he's not doing that. He's making some bold statements without naming the audience. Now he's doing what he traditionally does throughout the book. He's calling his beloved brothers in Christ to pay attention to these words. 
And then there's another word that you should automatically notice in every passage of Scripture. It's the word, therefore. If you ever see that word, you should ask the question, what's it? Therefore. And it always drives you backward in the text. And in this case, I think it drives us back uh, to the end of verse, uh, chapter 4, around verse 13. Uh, James is chiding the early Christians for boasting about tomorrow. He recognizes that our life is merely a vapor, yet God is eternal and sovereign. He's so much greater than us. And in light of that, we should live for him rather than ourselves. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, there's a very stern and scary warning to the rich in which James reminds us that those who place their faith in finances will actually receive God's judgment instead of liberation through Christ's blood. And so in making those two illustrations, James is teaching us this, that when we have a proper understanding of who God is, we will live very differently from the rest of the world. That's the point he's making. So, brothers, in light of that, or therefore, in verse 7, we understand James to be telling us that in light of God's character, every single one of us should be growing actively in patience, especially, as we'll see, in times of suffering. And so when the storms of life come, we will endure because we understand, we know, and we love the captain of the ship. He knows exactly what he's doing, and we can rest in him. It's none other than Almighty God. There's no need for us to panic or fear. And so James moves on to illustrate this several ways. The first is by drawing our attention to the world of agriculture. Uh, Just out of curiosity, are there any farmers in the room this morning? There are a few. Uh, In my church, there were one or two very similar to here. Uh, But think about this. A hundred years ago, we probably would have had a better grasp on this. We had a much more agrarian society, but that's shifted. But still, I think we understand this well enough to recognize what James is discussing here. So look at the next part of verse 7. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Planting crops is a huge investment. It requires so much capital up front that many farmers actually have to take out a loan just to purchase the seed that they know that they will be reimbursed for when the harvest comes in. Uh, There's a lot of equipment. There are so many man hours involved with just getting the ground ready and then maintaining it while you wait for the crop. But once the seed is planted in the ground, there is almost nothing a farmer can do to make it grow. Now, I know he can fertilize it. He can water it. He can pray. But he is completely powerless to actually make that seed grow. He can't control the weather. He can't cause the shell of that seed to crack open and to send its roots down into the soil. He cannot, like some snake charmer, cause the stem or the stalk to raise from the ground and point toward the sun. And even if the the plant grows, he cannot cause it to produce good fruit. The farmer just has to be patient. And that is not easy when his entire livelihood relies upon this. Any farmer who's ever lost a crop knows the pain and devastation 
that comes as a result. Yet no matter how badly he wants it to grow, he can only do his part. And he must rely on God to do the rest. So are you beginning to see how this works? The farmer must uphold his end of the bargain. He has to do the work. He can't just sit there and expect a crop to grow. But that farmer must equally depend upon God to actually do the work of bringing in the harvest. So you might think of this as active dependence. The farmer is required to take active steps while he fully depends upon God to do the work. Active dependence. Look then at verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do you see what he's saying? This isn't about agriculture. This is about our hearts. You too, you be patient. You exercise active dependence on God. Brothers and sisters, as you grow in patience, you must actively pursue him. Will you depend on him to do what only he can do as he changes your heart for your good and for his glory? Now James calls us to action when he says these words in the second half of verse 8. He says, establish your hearts. What does that mean? That means get ready. Get ready. It means prepare now for what will come. It means you get to know the Lord on such a deep level that when trials come and seek to shake your faith, you will not allow it to happen because you know him so well. You know that he is a good God and he is returning soon. When I see those words, establish your hearts, I think of the phrase, this is not a drill. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to photograph an active shooter drill at a high school in Pennsylvania. I remember hearing the 911 call go out, and then over the scanner came the dispatcher saying these words. This is only a drill. There is an active shooter in the high school. All units respond. This is only a drill. I stayed right there. I watched the entire thing unfold through the lens of my camera. I didn't panic. I didn't run away because this was only a drill. But imagine those words coming across the scanner without that caveat. That changes everything. Now it's real. Now the stakes are very high. The situation much more dire and intense. And what James is telling us here is this is not a drill. Establish your hearts. Prepare now. Tough times are coming, and you're going to need to rely upon your understanding that God is good, and that he is in control of all things. Get ready now. Because as sure as you're alive, your patience will be put to the test. And you will have to endure, as James says in chapter 1, trials of various kinds. Some of you are enduring trials right now. You know exactly what it means to have your faith shaken. 
to be in the thick of pain or difficulty or suffering, some of it very intense. Friend, I hope that your heart is established and that you are relying upon God through this storm. Others of us are enjoying a season without a lot of trial or tribulation. And we should recognize that now is the best time to prepare. That's why schools have active shooter drills, isn't it? The worst time to think about what you would do in the midst of chaos is in the midst of chaos. It's too difficult. Everything just feels tense. It's confusing. That is not the time to come up with a plan. No, we have to prepare ahead of time. And then, in the midst of confusion, we rely upon our training. We walk through the feelings of fear and frustration. And so how does James suggest that we establish our hearts? Theologically. What does he tell us to do? In a sense, he says, consider your theology. Look at the last part of verse 8. Remember. Remember what you learned. What did you learn? That the coming of the Lord is at hand. Brothers and sisters, that is a theological statement. Those are words of comfort that Christians have relied upon for centuries. It's the promise that one day Christ will return and he will wipe away every tear. He will make everything that has been wrong right. All of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the frustration, all of the broken relationships, all of it will just be gone. And we will be what we're striving to be now, made into the image of Christ. Brothers and sisters, establish your hearts. The second point that James makes about patience is this. Patience is a demonstration of reactive grace. Reactive grace. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, or look, the judge, notice the capital J, judge, is standing at the door. He's very near. You know, one of the most common strategies in Satan's playbook is to divide Christians. As a resident of Pennsylvania, I often have the opportunity to go out and to enjoy nature, uh, to just go on a hike with my family, or just to sit on the back porch and enjoy the beauty of of God's creation. And, and oftentimes, I see one of God's most magnificent creatures, the black bear. Uh, you can just sit and enjoy watching a black bear in relative safety. Now, as long as you don't get too close or try to feed it, you'll be fine. But there is one situation that you want to avoid. You never want to get between a mother bear and her cubs. Why is it that a mother bear is so protective of her young? It's because she knows that they are safer when they are together than when they are apart. She's not going to let anything come between her and her cubs. Nothing will separate them so that she can keep them safe. And as Christians, the same thing is true of us. We are far safer together than we are apart. God actually made us to depend upon one another. That's why in Scripture he refers to us as the body of Christ. Together we form one unit. 
And so in this room right now, some of you are eyes, some of you are ears, some of you are feet. There are bones and blood and everything that makes up the body represented in this room. And we need one another if we're going to survive. In fact, we are incomplete without each other. And so no matter what anyone tells you, there is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. People are always telling me why they don't like organized religion and how they don't really need church and how we've gotten it all wrong because really all we need is Jesus and we'll be just fine. Why go through the suffering of gathering together weekly with a bunch of hypocrites? And to be fair, there are plenty of bad churches out there There is also a great deal of good teaching out there. You can go online, you can go on your phone, you can go on your radio or your television and watch good sermons all day, every day of the week, and never hear all of them. And there are actually plenty of moral and decent people who never darken the door of a church. But friends, since when is Christianity about good teaching and good behavior? Remember what Jesus died for? He died for his bride. He died for the church. He died to take ruined sinners like you and like me and transform us into the body of Christ like this. And he has intentionally organized us in groups called the local church. That's why all of this is God's idea and not ours. I mean, do you realize that everything we've done this morning was God's idea? We're following instructions left in the New Testament for the church. That's why we sing. We're called to encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I need you to look me in the eye and say, Brother, behold our God. He is seated on the throne. We read Scripture because we're told to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. We pray corporately because we're commanded to devote ourselves to prayer. That's why this church has elders and deacons and membership meetings and church discipline and communion and fellowship. It's all there in the pages of the New Testament. Participation in the local church is not some option tacked on to the Christian life. It is the essence of the Christian life. If you want to see this clearly, I would commend to you the book of Ephesians. Just take the whole thing and read it. Even look at the pronouns. You'll see clearly this movement toward corporate unity. The book of Ephesians screams local church. There's no room for this idea that I can follow Christ without his body. And yet Satan continues to run this play play with great success. If he can just get us a little bit mad at each other, if he can cause us to doubt one another, if he can pit our theologies against one another, he can, in his mind, thwart God's eternal plan to show his manifold wisdom through the church. And so James here points out an all-too-familiar way that Satan seeks to separate Christians. It's through grumbling. It's not usually the big theological issues that divide us, is it? No, what tears us apart are those little things. Things like this. You know, I walked right by Bill this morning, and he didn't even say hi to me. 
I know he saw me, but he just walked right by me. Maybe Bill doesn't like me. Maybe I don't like Bill. Or there are things like this. I didn't really like the music this morning. What do you think about it? It was too loud. Or it was too soft. It was too high for me to sing or too low for me to sing. It was too new or it was too old. It was too fast or a bit too slow. A little too hymny or not quite hymny enough. Or this, can you believe the way he was dressed? I can't imagine walking out of my house like that, let alone going to church. Or why can't that person just control their children? Why can't that person be nicer to people? And on and on it goes. The grumbling of Christians against one another is a constant undercurrent in almost every church. And the murmuring of Christians is a wicked sound. It is music to Satan's ears and an evil rebellion in God's. And do you know what's behind it all? Pride. We think we're the only ones doing it right. Think I'm the only one who is raising my children's right, children right. And so I'll complain or judge someone who raises theirs differently. We want to be treated a certain way. We think we deserve it. And so we complain when others don't treat us the way we feel we should be treated. Or we just think our way is best, so we complain or point fingers when others do things differently. But I, I actually want you to do this. Look around the room. Just take a look around the room. Can you see what this room is full of? Sinners. Every single one of us. We are guilty sinners. You sing about it. We're wretches. The whole lot of us. And if you want to know the truth, we are all far worse than others think we are. Would anyone in this room want to volunteer to have all your thoughts broadcast on the screen for the rest of us to see? No, we know that that would be horrifying because we know that our hearts are wicked. We are a bunch of sinners who are going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to have distinct differences. But we are sinners saved by grace. And so let's repent of any sinful grumbling and remember the sweet sound of grace so amazing that it could save a wretch like me. This is reactive grace. Reactive grace says, God was good to me in the midst of my sin, so I will be good to you in the midst of yours. We react to grace with grace. Friends, we have Satan's playbook. We have a good idea of which pattern he's going to run. And so let's in no way allow him to divide us. Fight hard for unity and do not allow division. Commit to being a Christian who demonstrates patience by showing reactive grace. The third demonstration of patience is found uh, in the idea of fearless conviction. And that's the third point. Patience is a demonstration of fearless conviction. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Verse 10 is such a sobering verse. James is calling you and me to walk in the footsteps of some of the greatest men in the Bible, the prophets. And notice the word that James adds to his call for patience. Suffering. You know, this whole passage is really about more than just being patient with your husband or your wife or your kids, or patient at work, or patient in traffic. What James is really driving at is that we're going to need to remain patient in suffering. And that doesn't mean preparing in case we suffer. That means preparing for when we suffer. And he holds up for us this example called the prophets. Now, these were the men in Scripture who were called by God to declare the Word of God, usually in a community or an area that had rejected God. These are men who were willing to speak hard truth to people who did not want to hear what they had to say. You know what people usually do when they don't like the message, right? They shoot the messenger. Throughout the Old Testament, God's prophets were beaten, they were mocked, and they were even killed for, for, for proclaiming his word. There's a reference in the book of Revelation to the blood of the prophets who were slaughtered on earth. And this is the lesson we learn. Men and women who are convinced of the truth of God's word will demonstrate patience even in the midst of persecution. Let me say that again. Men and women who are convinced of the truth of God's word will demonstrate patience even in the midst of great persecution or tribulation. I think 10 years ago, this would have been more difficult for us to grasp. But in light of our rapidly changing culture, the idea of exercising patience during persecution does not seem so foreign to us. Our society is not only abandoning Christianity, it is turning on Christians. Christians have been cast as unloving bigots who promote hate and intolerance and injustice. At the very least, America views the church as irrelevant. But I fear that in the years to come, it will view the church as intolerable. I don't know if we'll experience bodily persecution in this generation. But I can say with certainty that the church will suffer. And those who do not have deep convictions regarding the word of God are not going to stick around. The stakes are getting too high. It is going to require fearless conviction if we're going to hold fast to the truth in a post-Christian America. And so I ask you, will you exercise patience by holding fast to the word of God? Will you stand firm as church after church veers from the truth in effort to maintain cultural acceptance? Will you stand firm when your friends and your family reject you for your beliefs? Now at the risk of offending you, I'm going to get real. If you've allowed the trivial things of life, things like money, sports, travel, laziness, or even your own comfort, or any other discretionary event 
to keep you from full on committing to church, you should have no reason to think that you will remain faithful when the going gets tough. The kind of patience you're going to need only comes from deep conviction. The kind of conviction that makes Christ and His church a priority over anything this life has to offer. And I say that not to point my finger at you and not because I'm against you. I say it to point you to Christ because I'm for you. Friends, commit yourself to Him and His bride with all of you. That's what we're called to be. We're going to need fearless conviction in these coming days, months, and years as God allows great difficulty in order to teach us patience. Let me move on to our final point this morning. That is that patience is a demonstration of unshakable trust. Patience is a demonstration of unshakable trust. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James is going to wrap up this section by giving us one final illustration of someone in Scripture who demonstrated great patience. It's another man we're called to imitate. His name is Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, you understand his story well. If you've never read the book of Job, that's another assignment for this afternoon. Go home and read the book in its entirety. It will bless your soul. It will move you even more when you understand that you're called to patiently persevere, just like Job. So I'm just going to give you a quick summary here of his story. Job is very wealthy. He has a large family. And actually a very happy life. But in a single day, his entire family, except his wife, is killed. His fortune is lost. And then he comes down with this horrible disease in which his entire body is covered in painful sores. And there is nothing he can do to escape the pain. And then his friends arrive, and they torment him with questions, trying to prove that it's Job's own sin that had caused his great misery. His own wife came along and told him, Job, just curse God and die. And through it all, Job patiently endured because his faith was completely unshakable. And I tell you that not one of us has suffered like Job. Yet how pitiful is it that we quickly lose our patience. Could it be that we've forgotten that last part of verse 12? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When we grumble and complain, when we fight and give up, we're living as though we've forgotten about God's compassion and His mercy. But church, we have got to get it through our heads that no matter how we feel in the moment, no matter how desperate our condition seems to be, no matter how much our prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling, God is compassionate and merciful. 
Our circumstances do not change what is true about God. They are meant to remind us of just how good He is. Will you demonstrate patience by placing your trust in God to the point that your faith, like Job's, is unshakable? Next time someone tells you not to pray for patience, you remind them that it's better to suffer and become like Christ than it is to enjoy an easy life and miss God. I trust that God will use these words to establish your hearts today. But I don't want to leave here without just recognizing two things very quickly. The first is that we have all failed. To put it another way, you've blown it. Some of you lost your patience this morning and you knew you were coming to church. We fail at this every single day. But friend, do not bear the guilt of your sin. Do not try to carry what only Christ can carry. He's borne that guilt on the cross. And so what you should do if you feel guilt this morning, if you feel like these words are a thousand pounds just resting on your shoulders, remember the truth of God's word. Christ said, what about his burden? It's easy. It's light. And so here's what we recognize. That in allowing us to feel the guilt of our sin, he's pointing us once again to himself, the only place where we can find freedom. Confess your sins and know that he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't bear the guilt. Trust Christ. And secondly is, outside of true salvation and then actively growing faith, almost nothing that I've talked about this morning will make sense. There is no good explanation for suffering outside of Christ. And so if this morning you're just scratching your head saying, I don't know if I buy all of this, I would ask you perhaps for the first time to begin to depend upon Christ. All of our trials and all of our difficulties are meant for our good. And if you're outside of a saving faith, a saving relationship with Christ, he means your trials to point you to him for salvation. So my my encouragement to you this morning is don't miss it. Don't miss God's grace as he stands at the door and knocks this morning. Uh, Trust him, repent of your sins, and follow him by his grace. If you're interested about finding are interested in finding out more about what it means to follow Christ. You can speak with me following the service, uh, your elders, probably any member of this congregation would be more than happy to talk to you about that. So why don't we pray together as we uh, ask God's help in applying this word to our hearts. Father, we once more recognize your loving grace Lord, it is so kind of you to allow us to hear from your word, although at times we recognize the greatness of our sin and feel the burden of that. We understand that you have allowed us to experience that, that we might be free of it. So this morning, would you lead us to repentance? Thank you for the promise that as we repent, you will forgive us of our sins and you will establish us. Lord, would you establish our hearts now? 
Thank you, God, for the privilege of teaching in this church this morning. Thank you once more for these dear brothers and sisters and the consistent encouragement that they provide for myself and my family. Lord, would, would you most of all be honored in all that we've done and said this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.